I am indeed very honored to be here with you today. Actually, at my age, I'm glad to be anywhere, but especially glad to be here. You have a beautiful building, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but the reputation of your church goes far, far beyond Burnsville. Uh, you're blessed to be a part of a church that has uh, an astonishing reputation for upholding God's word and doing God's word in God's way. And of course, everything rises and falls on leadership, and uh, you have a pastor that uh, his reputation goes very far in our circles. John Piper once made the comment, he said, when the swans are silent, you can hear the crickets chirping. The swan is down here silent this morning, and so I hope this cricket will share something with you that will be of value to you. I'm coming to you as a pastor, as Pastor Dan said, with uh, 45 years of pastoral experience, and about 30 of that, I've been involved in, in uh, pastoral counseling, and uh, I think we're all aware of the fact that uh, marriages in our day and, uh, and the other requisite issues that go along with that, there's tremendous turmoil and struggle, and so I'm coming to you with a very special passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 11, and I'd like you to turn there with me, and I want to read it for you. And then, uh, and then we're going to get into it. And uh, I just, I hope that you'll find this to be an extraordinary blessing today. It has been uh, to me and in my counseling ministry. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It begins this way. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of this kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, you recognize Paul has written a letter to the Corinthian church, and one of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church was because he was trying to answer some questions. So apparently they had sent a letter to him loaded with questions, and he painstakingly answered them one by one in this letter. Now, chapter 7 is a very interesting chapter because it consists of Paul's answers to some pretty heavy questions about marriage, about sex, about singleness, about lust about divorce, and about being married to an unbeliever. Now, we don't have time to unpack the whole chapter. I only read the first, actually, 11 verses of this, and uh, we're going to roam around in the chapter a little bit for supporting uh, truths to the ones that we're going to talk about. But just in these first 11 verses, we've got more than enough to think about. Now, before we get into these questions, let me just give you a little bit of background. And I'm going to mention four things. Number one, Corinth was the most immoral city in the ancient world. It was so bad that the word Corinthian came to mean wanton lust the same way that Dutch means frugal, German means stubborn, and Norwegian means noble and generous and courageous and all that. 
Now, obviously, not all Corinthians were immoral, just as not all Germans are stubborn. But the city had a reputation in the ancient world that was well-deserved. It was a city of undescribable debauchery. By the way, if you're anything of a culture watcher, you recognize that our own nation is just descending to the level of Corinthianism. I often wonder what God thinks of a so-called Christian nation that glorifies sex, advertises sex, aborts babies produced by sex, and legitimizes sexual deviancy even to the point of celebrating it. I don't think it would be far from the truth to call modern America a Corinthian culture. But as bad as it is here right now, it was worse in ancient Corinth. Second, I want you to notice this, and that is Paul fully expected that the Lord is going to return at any minute. And it didn't end up happening that way, but it did influence the counsel that he is giving. He believed with all of his heart, and we should too, that the Lord could return at any moment. And if he does and when he does, he should find us living noble, Christ-like lives before the ungodly. And we've got to keep that in mind as we read through this, these recommendations that he gives. Because nowhere is our Christian nobleness more on display than in our marriages which is why Paul is ready to address marital issues. Number three, you need to understand that there were four levels of marriage in the days of Corinth. Number one is slaves who were allowed to live together as husband and wife as long as the owner allowed it. But the owner could come in and he could say, no, I want you to live with her instead. I want her to live over here. And he could sell one or the other. So marriage among slaves was a sham. Number two, there was a common law type of arrangement where if a man and a wife lived together for a year, they were considered marriage. But by the way, some states recognize common law marriage. In my state of Michigan, they do not. I had a lady that came to me. She'd been living with a guy for 20 years. And during that 20 years, he made the house payments. He took care of all the utilities. And she bought the groceries. And she did the decorating. And she made this house into just a gorgeous showpiece. After 20 years, she becomes a Christian, and she decides to move out, and she discovers at that point she has no rights. She got absolutely nothing. And uh, one of the things that people who live together in Michigan, and probably most states, need to recognize is that that is true. So then number three, there was an instance where a father could sell his daughter to his prospective husband. That happened in the Roman Empire which is exactly what's happening in Southeast Asia. I really enjoyed that global perspectives class this morning. And one of the things that's going on in Thailand and Cambodia is men who are desperate are selling their daughters to prospective husbands. And then number four, there was the more elevated form of marriage, which is celebrated with weddings similar to what we do. There's a best man and a, and a maid of honor and a religious ceremony, and they exchange vows, and, and there was feasting and all that. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a higher form of marriage. But for all that, Divorce was unbelievably rampant. It was not uncommon for some people to have been married 20 times in their lives. Juvenal, a Roman poet of that area, described a society that looked shockingly like ours. He said, women have rejected their own sex and have taken to wearing helmets. They delight in feats of strength. They hunt pigs with spears and have utterly worn out their bridal veils. Okay, so now, recognize that in the church at Corinth, there are people who are living under all four arrangements. Many of them have multiple divorces under their belts. So the question comes up to the Apostle Paul, okay, Paul, now that we're Christians, what do we do about these things? 
Do we divorce our current spouses and then go back to the original one that we had? Do we divorce our spouses if they refuse to become Christians? You know, forsake not these, or not, not that one, but uh, uh, being not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Do we stay single and avoid all these traps? Is, is marriage even spiritual? Maybe it's the, the obvious thing to do is to remain celibate for our whole lives. Now, one of the things that we like about the Apostle Paul is that uh, when he tackles practical issues, he doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't hint at solutions. He nails stuff head on. And in the first 11 verses of this chapter, he laid down six great principles, six principles basic to our understanding of life and godliness within marriage. But now, the first one is a little bit outside that, because here's the first principle. Singleness. A life of sexual celibacy is a gift to be celebrated. You notice several times in this passage, Paul declares that it's good to be single. His his statement in verse 1, that it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a wife, that's the functional equivalent of his comment in verse 8, that it's good to remain unmarried as I am, in other words, single. And then in verse 38, which we didn't read, he says, although it's good to be married, it's even better to remain single. Now, of course, in our day, singleness doesn't mean celibacy. But the Apostle Paul made it very clear in chapter 6, which is the chapter before this in verses 12 through 20, that sex outside of marriage is sinful and it is wrong. He also makes the point in verse 9 in this passage that marriage is the legitimate outlet for sexual desire. If you're burning with lust, get married, he says. So when he says it's good for men not to have sex... He's saying, in effect, it's good not to marry since marriage is the legitimate outlet for sex. Now, I run across kids in our town. I have a I have a chess club with kids down at Jump and Java. That's the coffee shop downtown. And I'm getting to meet all these high school kids from the public high schools. And uh, and and these and we have a very religious town. We have 63 churches in our town. And some of these kids are absolutely shocked at the idea that sex outside of marriage is wrong. They have never heard that before. Well, why would Paul say it's good to remain single? After all, God gave the gift of marriage, didn't he, and the gift of sex to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it was innocent, and it was pure, and it was God-blessed, and that be the case. Why celebrate singleness and celibacy? Isn't it the norm to marry and have sex? There's two reasons why he says that, and I want you to hear these two reasons. Number one, he mentions the current distress. And because of this distress, it's good to remain unmarried. And what is this distress? Well, it's persecution. It's suffering, even martyrdom. It hit hard in Acts chapter 8 when the, uh, the church of Jesus Christ faced enormous persecution in the city of Jerusalem. And they were driven outside the city and they went up to Antioch and Pisidia and then spread everywhere preaching the gospel. In a time when people are fleeing for their lives or facing execution for their beliefs, it's terribly distracting to be worrying about family. Arab terrorists have used this against Israelites, Israelis for years. In uh, the first time I went to Israel in 1980, it was interesting. Um, we, as we went around the city of Jerusalem and other parts, we, we noticed that there were school kids everywhere. And we thought, we asked the guy, why aren't they in school? Why, why are they out here? And he said, well, we're trying to get them outside the classrooms and into uh, the historical sites so that they can, as as subsequent generation, they didn't fight to, to, to secure Israel, but we want them to relive that and to gain a sense of, uh, of ownership. And I said, then I said, 
so why are there people guarding them with machine guns? And he said, well, because the terrorists know that if they kill us, we're okay with that. But they kill our kids, we lose heart. And then we move back to Brazil and America and everywhere else. So uh, he said, by the way, those aren't soldiers. Those are moms and dads with those AK-47s and those Uzis. And he said, you look cross-eyed at those kids. They'll blow your kneecaps off. <laughs> the point that everybody knows is you come after the kids and, uh, and people lose heart. ISIS is using that right now. The communists use it against the Christians in Laos and Cambodia for years. I didn't get married until I was 31. And in my late 20s, I was convinced that because of my advanced singleness that maybe God was calling me to submissions in some dangerous part of the world for this very reason. Now, you remember that Paul was operating on the assumption that the Lord is coming back in any minute. He really believed that. And so there's a monumental job to be done while we're waiting for the Lord to come back. The gospel needs to be carried to every tribe and nation. So obviously this is no time, in Paul's thinking, this is no time to get married and set up housekeeping and nurse sick kids. All of that sidetracks a person from this huge task that we have to accomplish. So one, one reason is because of the current distress. We may face that current distress. Number two, the other reason that Paul cherished his singleness is that it put him entirely at the disposal of Jesus Christ. He says that in verses 32 and 33 later in this chapter. Now, now I want you to hear this. The Apostle Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please it. By the way, you know, there's two ways to please a wife. But nobody knows what those two things are. <laughs> there are no distractions. There's nothing to keep one from devoting oneself to the cause of Christ as a single person. And notice, by the way, this is exactly the opposite reason of why people choose singleness today. People choose to be single today because they want to totally live for themselves. They want to be free from the slavery of household demands and marital obligations. And they want maximum freedom so that, they can, so that nothing will cramp their lifestyle. But the Apostle Paul was so focused on making the best use of his life and his energy and his time, he was so intent on serving Christ, that he was willing to forego marriage in order to serve Christ. And he highly recommended it. By the way, God has called more than a few people to serve the Lord in such a way. John Stott, one of my favorite devotional writers. Henry Nguyen, a great devotional writer. Nancy DeMoss, I think you've heard of her. Although she just got married, and I think she was 60 when she got married. And, and listen, if this is the life that God has chosen for you, that is not something to mourn. It's something to celebrate. Because it means that God doesn't intend to share you with anybody else. It means he's got a work for you to do that demands single-mindedness, and he plans to use you to accomplish things that a married person cannot do. God not only called Paul to singleness, but Jeremiah, John the Baptist, and thousands of others as well. And by the way, despite what Dan Brown suggests in his Da Vinci Code, Jesus himself remained single and single-minded in his devotion to his work. Sometimes single people get the idea that they're second-class citizens, that they're not normal. I think the Apostle Paul would have something to say about that. It's clear that he himself preferred it. He certainly recommended it, and he refers to it. As a gift. So let's be careful to honor those who are single for God's glory. And those of you who are, dream big dreams about how you can use your singleness to great advantage 
serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as your chosen partner. In other words, don't waste your singleness. That's the first great principle Paul laid down in this passage. Singleness is a gift to celebrate. It is a high and noble calling for some. And now the second one is sort of like that, but it's taking it a step farther. And that is singleness is not for everybody. That's what Paul admits in verse 7. He said, I wish that all would remain as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. The fact is, not everybody can handle singleness. Jesus said so in Matthew 19, 12, verse 12. He said, some have remained single for the kingdom of God, but not everybody is able to do this. Adam obviously wasn't cut off for singleness. You know, God created him, put him in the Garden of Eden, and he had everything that was necessary for his happiness and joy, except one thing was missing. He was incomplete. He was alone, and it wasn't good. And so God created all the animals and paraded all the animals by him, and he examined everyone, and he named every one of them, gave them appropriate names. He was a smart guy. And, and, and when the process was done, he was still alone. Even the dog wasn't his best friend. You know, I thought that I was cut off for singleness. I thought that was my gift. And as I look over the years when I was in youth work, I, I don't think I could have done what I did as a single, per, as a married person. I did, I did five weeks of camp every summer. I did retreats in the in the spring and the in the winter. I did Easter trips. I did Boundary Waters canoe trips. I did Monday night. I had His Men, which is a high school leadership and character development program. Tuesday night calling, Wednesday night prayer meeting, Friday night Bible study, Saturday night youth activities every single week. Sunday night we had youth chapel before the evening service, and then we had syncopation after the evening service. Fifty-two weeks a year, and then I would take kids home afterwards and get home at two o'clock in the morning. By the time I hit 30, I decided I'm not cut out for this. And God gave me a wife, which is the best thing that ever happened to me. She's my chief encourager, my, my counselor, my companion, and sometimes my conscience. For some, singleness is a gift. For me, marriage is a gift. And I'm deeply thankful for the woman God gave me as my partner. Sometimes I think without her, I'd be a permanent resident up at Glenwood Sanitarium. So the second principle is singleness is not for everybody. It's an undervalued gift, but it's not for everybody. Number three, marriage is a God-given protection against sexual sin. That's what Paul says in verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So here's the idea. God created human beings to be sexual beings. And although some have the gift of celibacy, not everybody does. So rather than live a life of frustration and temptation, they should marry. As Paul alludes in verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to live a life aflame and frustrated with passion. So to repeat what I just said a few minutes ago, marriage is the legitimate God-given outlet for sexual passion. Marriage is far more than that, of course. It's not just a convenient outlet for marriage, but it is that. Now, please understand the implications of Paul's statement. Because of the temptation to be immoral, each man should have his own what? Spouse. Not partner, not girlfriend. Spouse. And each woman her own what? Husband. Not boyfriend. 
There are some Christian counselors and Christian psychologists who argue that the word immorality refers to promiscuity, and as long as two people are committed to each other, engaged, for example, then premarital sex is not wrong. Of course it's wrong. They didn't read this passage. Sex is only permissible with a spouse, and until you're married, you don't have a spouse to have sex with. As George Bush Sr. would have uh, put it, Read my lips. No sex outside of marriage. No exceptions. No excuses. In fact, it's clear to me that engaged couples are precisely who Paul had in mind when he wrote this. Because look down at verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, his fiancée, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is not sin. There is uh, quite a movement toward marrying younger in Christian circles for this very reason. And I think there's some wisdom in it because of sexual passion. I was just talking to Pastor Miller about the fact that in my counseling, I've become overwhelmed with the number of guys who are coming to me at all levels of life, including ministers of the gospel who are overcome with pornography. It starts many times when they're young and their hormones are raging, and there's no legitimate outlet, and so they turn to porn and all that that involves. And I'm pretty sure I could spend the rest of the day telling you what a devastating addiction porn is on the mind, the body, and the marriage. It's probably one of the, most, one of the worst moral poisons the devil has ever devised. And so these young guys either fall into porn or they get their girlfriend pregnant and they inherit a lifetime of, of trouble from that. So it's better to marry at an earlier age than to set yourself up for a life of regret and dysfunction. Now, Paul says singleness is to be preferred, but if you can't handle that, you should get married. And then, once married, celibacy is wrong. Notice what he says in verses 3 through 5. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again, that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There's, there's some serious implications for this, okay? Number one, it's not okay for a wife to lock the bedroom door on her husband when she's mad at him. No making him sleep on the couch. Because she does not have authority over her body. She surrendered it to him when she agreed to marry him and vice versa. And Ephesians chapter 5 verse 26 says, let not the sun go down on your wrath in the first place. So you never go to bed mad anyway. Number two, a second implication is to withhold sex from your partner is to cause an inexcusable buildup of sexual temptation. Now, Paul is not saying that in cases like that, it's okay to go look for sexual satisfaction anywhere because it's not. It's still adultery. It's still judged by God. But there's no excuse for causing that kind of buildup. Marriage is a relief valve, not a tension builder. And then thirdly, the only celibacy that a married couple practices is the fasting kind for a spiritual reason for a mutually agreed upon period of time, and then they come together again. So a couple might decide, you know, we've got this terrifically important decision to make, or we're under terrible stress, we need to hear a word from God. And so they agree. Some people agree to fast from food. I did that for two hours one time, and that was more than enough. 
And other people, to be really serious, because sex is a huge part of their life, they say, we're going to sacrifice sex for three days or, or whatever in order to devote ourselves to seeking the face of God. But then, he says, come together again. Lest Satan get the upper hand. So when he says that, the implication here is that frequency is an important element in providing sexual satisfaction to your marriage partner. Now, I also want to offer just a common sense bit of advice to those who haven't figured it out yet. And that is, sex is not just a physical act. The better the relationship, the greater the pleasure. We're not goats that just randomly hook up. We're human beings made in the image of God who gave us sex as a gift to celebrate and to enhance one's uh, oneness with one's life partner. It's a physical culmination of a deep connectedness between two people. In premarital counseling, I tell people, first, there needs to be a spiritual connection. You need to both love God. Then there needs to be a mental connection where you share your ideas and your values and your priorities and your perspectives so you know how each other think. And then there has to be an emotional connection where you where you laugh together and you cry together and you watch the sun go down together and smell the roses together and all that kind of stuff. And then based on all of that oneness, then on your wedding night, you're celebrating a sexual oneness that is vastly, vastly enhanced by the onenesses that have already been established. So clear the air, solve problems, demonstrate love, and sex is definitely more satisfactory. In fact, Preparation for the act of marriage begins early in the day. Some guys think it starts when you're heading for the bedroom, but it's not. When a husband gets up in the morning and he fixes his wife a cup of coffee and he leaves a little note in the bathroom about how much he appreciates her and he kisses her on the way out the door and then he comes home and he says, how can I help, honey? And so she says, I'm frazzled. Would you fold the laundry? He folds the laundry. He helps her do the dishes afterwards. He has devotions with the kids. He helps with the kids with their homework. He helps put the kids to bed. And then when it's time to go to bed... She's ready. Marriage is a hedge against sexual sin because it's God's perfect way to satisfy sexual desire. And that leads to the fourth principle that God lays, Paul lays down, and that is, number four, Satan uses sexual desire to destroy us. At the end of verse five, he says, come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sexual desire is not wrong. It's not evil. Satan did not invent sexual desire because sexual desire is good and Satan never created anything good. His whole aim is to ruin what is good and then use it to destroy us. So what Satan does is he watches for signs of vulnerability and then he attacks. So when an engaged couple is careless and they let themselves get steamed up alone in a car at night, then Satan can easily nudge them over the edge. When a wife is feeling neglected or unappreciated, Satan can give her a dozen reasons why she deserves better. When a husband, even a pastor, isn't enjoying mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical intimacy with his wife, he's vulnerable to whatever vixen Satan happens to parade before him. Now, please take this very seriously. Satan hates marriage because it pictures the love relationship between Christ and his church. Satan hates your marriage. He wants you and your spouse to argue and to fight and to hate each other and hopefully even get divorced because he wants to destroy your children. He wants them to hate God and he wants the world to see that you're absolutely no different from anybody else. 
And Satan hates the church, and he hates pastors, and he hates all spiritual leaders, and he works the hardest at pulling them down. Satanic followers have been known to fast and pray to Satan for the destruction of clergy marriages in my town. So you remind yourself, when you're battling sexual desire, you're battling Satan. And also remind yourself that God has given you every resource imaginable to triumph over Satan, beginning with your marriage. Keep your marriage in good repair. It's your best defense. And if it ever starts crumbling at the edges, race into the pastoral staff and get counsel. Now, that leads me to the great overlooked principle of marriage. It's number five in our list. This is the great overlooked principle of marriage, and that's this. Marriage isn't about getting. It's about giving. In Ephesians 5... Paul commands husbands three times to love their wives. Once as much as Christ loved the church, and then two times as much as they love their own bodies. And the key word there is agape, and it's defined by the Bible. John 3.16, for God so agape loved the church that he gave himself for it. Galatians 2.20, Christ also agape loved me and gave himself for me. And then Ephesians 5.25, Christ also agape loved the church and gave himself for it. The principle of agape love is sacrifice and giving. And then you notice it is a command to obey. Men are commanded to love their wives. And then in, in, in Titus, it says that the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands in the same way. Now, you, you can't command a feeling. I can't command you to feel ambitious. I can't command you to feel lazy. I can't command you to feel courageous. You can't command feelings. So when you're commanded to love, you're not commanded to have warm, fuzzy feelings. You're commanded to love your spouse whether you feel like it or not. To treat her or him lovingly whether you like it or not. This is, this is what we call 100% kind of love. It can never be what the world says. It can never be 50-50. Because if it's 50-50, we're always going to be worrying about the other person's 50%, how they're doing with that. Now, when I married my wife... I had been teaching in the Fourth Baptist Bible Institute, and uh, the guy who was supposed to teach family foundations got sick, and so I was assigned to teach his class. I had three months to prepare. I wasn't married, and I knew precious little about it at that point, so I read 51 books about marriage. And, uh, and so on the basis of that, and teaching this course, and having taken some counseling courses, I thought, in marrying Ev, I'm going to bend over backwards. I'm going to, I'm going to put forth the, the, the vast majority of the effort. All I want from her is maybe I'll, I'll put in 80%. She has to put in 20%. In fact, I'll put in 90%. She only has to do just a little tiny bit. Okay? So when we had a problem, and inevitably they do, where do I put the problem? When I'm thinking, I'm bending over backwards, I'm putting all this magnificent amount of effort into it, now we've got a problem. I mashed into her 10%, which is why the word agape is used. It's 100%. And that's what we say in our vows. When you repeat your vows before God and these witnesses, I covenant to love, honor, and cherish for sick, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, until death do his part. There's no, there's no codicil in there that as long as you do your part. It's, it's a 100% vow that you're making. That, that is the whole basic fundamental flaw in unbiblical marriages. All around us. 
and even some of you married for the wrong reasons. You're single, and here's this, this woman that comes floating into your life, and she's beautiful, and she's fun to be with, and you think, I'll marry her, and she'll make me happy. And she agrees to marry you because she looks at you, and you get got big muscles, and you're fun to be with, and you got a good job, and you can take care of her. And so she marries you for what you can do for her. So you get married, and after a while, you realize, I'm not happy. So I must have married the wrong person because your job is to make me happy. That's the unbiblical basis of marriage, and that is the unbiblical basis upon which some of us married. And inevitably, it leads to divorce because over time, no human being on the face of the earth can satisfy you. That is the most unrealistic expectation ever devised. Esther Perel, a psychotherapist specializing in... you ever watch those TED Talks? I do. Listen to, listen to this one. She said this. Marriage used to be primarily an economic institution in which you were given a partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now we want our partner to still give us all these things. But in addition, I want you to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot and and to live twice as long. So we come to one person and we're basically asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging. Give me identity. Give me continuity. Give me transcendence and mystery and all all in one. Give me comfort. Give me an edge. Give me novelty. Give me familiarity. Give me predictability. Give me surprise. There isn't a husband or wife on the face of the earth that can be a sensation after 40 years. No human being on earth can be expected to provide all that. Hence the skyrocketing divorce rates. Now, in light of that, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 and 4 again. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Sexual pleasure is not the sort of thing that you demand from your spouse. It is the sort of thing that you bestow on your spouse. You give your spouse conjugal rights. You give your spouse control, authority over your body. When you use this passage to demand sexual favors from your spouse, you're twisting it and distorting it, and you're using it for selfish purposes. That's not love. That's lust. Sex is a gift, not a right. When we treat it as a right, it's all about me. When we treat it as a gift to bestow, then it rightly expresses love. That's what defeats Satan. And by the way, it greatly, greatly pleases God. Now, if you're single and you're clearly gifted by God to be single, embrace it and use it as powerfully as Paul did. If you're married, let your marriage be a beautiful, delightful illustration of the relationship between Christ and the church. And may it continue that way until death do us part. Which brings me to the sixth principle, and that is divorce is an absolute last resort and heavily regulated. Now, here's I want you to understand what I'm saying here. When the disciples asked Jesus about divorce in Matthew 19, Jesus told them that divorce is due to the hardness of hearts. He went on to say that in marriage, a man and a woman become one flesh, or no longer two but one, and since God is the one who put them together, let no man pry them apart. In your mind, by the way, you're objecting. We decided to get married. We exchanged our vows to one another. How do you say God put us together? Well, God is sovereign. And he allowed the two of you to find each other. He could have stopped it, but he didn't. 
for whatever reasons he had, he allowed you to get together. You remember some of those times when you were deep in love and you were hoping it was going to wind up in marriage and then the other person broke it off or you found out something that made you break it up. Don't you think God had a hand in all that? And then when you were married, you exchanged your vows before God, calling God as a witness to the sincerity of your vows and prayers were offered during your wedding ceremony, appealing to God to bless the union that's now being established in his sight. And all the wording of all the vows you exchanged invoked permanence. It was all about this till death do us part, not until we no longer get together so well anymore. Jesus gives one exception, and that is not just adultery, unrepentant adultery. Because if your spouse commits adultery and does a thorough job of repenting, there's no grounds for divorce. Because forgiveness means I'm going to set this aside. I'm not going to hold it over your head. I'm not going to let it affect how I treat you anymore. I'm going to let it go. If you let it go, what's to get divorced over? The exception that Jesus cites is when a spouse commits adultery and refuses to repent and basically tells his spouse or her spouse to get used to it. That's just the kind of person I am. Now, in verse 15, Paul mentions the problem of unbelieving spouses who depart. He says, let them depart. You're called to peace. You have no control over that. But apart from those things, what about what about what if you have a spouse that's that's uh, abusive? What, what if you've got a spouse who is tormenting the children with uh, because he's a drug addict or an alcoholic or or what if it becomes dangerous to live under the same roof with this person? Well, what then? I always tell women in my church, you know, if, if you get in that kind of a situation, there's two phone calls you make. Number one, you call the police and you press charge. And number two, you call me. If you don't make the first call, don't call them. Don't make the second. Because Romans 13 is there for these kind of situations. But what do you do when this person is unrepentant and when, they, when, it, when it continues and they refuse to go to counseling and they refuse to change and they refuse to become the kind of person that lives amicably with the spouse and with the children? What then? All your friends will tell you, get a divorce, it's your right. What are you waiting for? Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, hold on. Here's a word from Jesus. Notice he says that to the married I give this charge. Not I. This isn't Paul speaking. This is the Lord speaking. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband. It's the functional equivalent of divorce and so on, as you can see from that passage. But if she does separate from her husband, she has two options. Remain married, unmarried for the rest of her life, or else be reconciled to her husband. And by the way, the husband should not divorce his wife either. Okay, two options, only two. Remain single for the rest of your life, or remarry your original spouse. So here's the scenario. Your marriage is so bad, you've tried absolutely everything possible, and you're finally at the point where you would rather be single for the rest of your life than continue to live like this. Then okay, there's an escape clause for you. The other option is perhaps your spouse will eventually become a believer. And I've had several occasions where that's happened. People have come to me and uh, they were divorced years ago. And now the husband got saved in one case. The wife got saved in the other case. And now they want to get, get remarried. And they weren't married to anybody else in the meantime. And so, yeah, that's what Paul is talking about. Eventually, if your spouse becomes a believer and is radically transformed into the kind of a person that you do want to spend the rest of your life, then remarry to the one you were, remarried, you were married to before. But get this, there's no other options. Is this a hard saying? Jesus admitted that it is. But it reminds us that God takes marriage very, very seriously. Far more seriously than we do. 
Jesus even went on so far as to say this. He said, if you're not going to be able to uphold the ideal of marriage that I've laid down for you in Matthew 19, he said, then it would be better not to get married. Some might be asking, okay, well, we're already divorced. Then what do we do? Well, some would say divorce your present spouse and go back to your previous spouse, which is to say do another wrong in order to do right. And in fact, Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 5, if you get divorced and you marry somebody else, you can't go back to your previous one because that's playing games with marriage. Take it lightly. And God uses the word abomination for that kind of a thing, which is one of the strongest words for repugnance there is in the Hebrew language. So rather, Paul says in verse 20, each should remain. See that in verse 20, in 1 Corinthians 7, 20, each should remain in the condition in which he was called, which means to say, now that you're a Christian to the Corinthians, now that you're Christian, if you're single, stay single because of the current distress. If you're married, stay married. If you're divorced and single, stay that way. If you're divorced and remarried, then stay that way. God hates divorce, and after committing a divorce, you don't fix the problem by committing divorce again and then trying to undo the first divorce. There needs to be some stability. But I think Paul would ask you to do this. I think he would say, be an advocate for a high view of marriage. Advise others, don't make the same mistakes, don't commit the same sin that we did. I think he would ask you to acknowledge that it was wrong for you to marry unwisely in the first place. It was wrong for you to rush into the divorce and that there are ongoing consequences that you never saw coming. Raise your consciousness about that. And then whatever you do, call others to uphold the biblical ideal for marriage and set yourself to do that in the marriage that you're now in. OK, that's all the hard stuff. And, and that needs to be talked about. Now, let's end on a high note. Marriage, if you honor God's principles, can be the best thing that ever happened to you. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, that even if you're the only one that's saved, you can still turn your marriage around and it still can be good. Now, let me end with this. I ran across a piece written by a woman who's providing care for her elderly parents. And I want you to listen to what she says. My parents got married when they were 19 and recently celebrated their 62nd wedding anniversary. But today, things aren't easy for them. My mom struggles with Alzheimer's, and something about the evening makes her even more confused. Medical professionals have a term for this. It's called sundown syndrome. It's a common experience for folks with Alzheimer's. So for mom, when evening comes, she gets disoriented and demands to be taken home. Well, my mom and dad live in an apartment facility for the elderly, so we're not sure what she means by home, because technically she is home. So one night I was watching TV with my mom and dad in their apartment, and mom started pleading, I'm tired, can someone help me help get my coat and take me home? At first her questions were addressed generally to the room, and then to me and my husband. And she gets frustrated, and she cries, Ack! with full German disgust. And then she focuses on her husband, why won't he take me home? Two years ago, my dad had his voice box removed because of cancer, so it's difficult for him to talk. He can't comfort his frightened, sick wife. But my mom can't remember the surgery, so she demands, why won't you talk to me? In despair, he shakes his head back and forth, which makes her angrier. He just shakes his head. He never talks to me, she shouts. She calls him selfish, uncaring, and a host of hurtful words and names. My dad's eyes are misting over. He's a tough man. Foreign language, strong language is not foreign to this old Norwegian painting contractor, but he understands what's really going on. 
She's saying, I'm scared and confused. And that's what really breaks his heart. Finally, my mom decides that she could spend the night here in their apartment. She turns as sweet as she had been horrid moments before. You poor man, she tells my dad. You're a good man. We can stay here, can't we? We'll be fine tonight. She goes to her room, gets ready for bed. Coming to my dad one last time before retiring, she puts her hands on each arm of his chair, gets her face about a foot from his, and with the most enduring look, she asks, Do you have something to say to me? He mouths, I love you. I love you too, she replies, and she goes to bed. They have a love that lasts a lifetime. So ingrained that even the loss of memory and voice cannot touch it. That's what happens when God makes two people into one flesh.